This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. And with that, we have a special treat for you all. We have Kent, who's joining us from, from Colorado Springs. He is uh, an advisor to the elders and has helped our church uh, a lot. So welcome, Kent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to see you, Emmaus. Good to be back. It's been a little while. Now, Amen. Say it, brother. <laughs> Go ahead. Get a little higher on this. There we go. All right. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. How about you? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Amen. I know we're not. Praise God. Well, in keeping with the theme as you guys have been going through Hebrews about confidence, I have the distinct pleasure about preaching the confidence that's found in faith. And as the gentleman just read that rather, rather lengthy passage, uh, just kept reminding me how Aaron set me up. I, I think this is the longest passage of scripture I've ever had to preach. 42 verses, wow. So me being, a, me being an old Air Force guy, my analogy for this is I'm going to do a flyover with a few strategically placed laser-guided JDAMs in a few spots <laughs> because there's absolutely no way to mine all the jewels in this rich, rich passage of Scripture. And so without further ado... I'm just going to hit and pray and get started, and I'm going to try to watch my time. This is, this is really long, so, but the, it's just so rich, I don't want to skip over everything. Father in heaven, we come before you relying on you and you alone. Lord, this is the word of God, the word that was breathed from you through your prophets, Lord, and this, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I pray now that I would decrease, that you may increase. Pray that you and you alone be glorified during this time. I pray that your people would be exhorted, that they would be encouraged, that they would be motivated, that they would be spurned on in their faith. Father, have your perfect way with each and every one of us now. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, my wife Dana couldn't make it up. She sends her regards. She just got back in the Colorado Springs from visiting her parents down in Texas. So, hello, Dana, if you're out there watching. So, uh, anyway, so as I looked at this huge panorama of Scripture, I saw it as four distinct overarching themes of chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, what faith is, 11 verses 4 to 38, examples of persevering faith. 11, 39 to 40, commendation of persevering faith. And chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the motivation to persevere in faith, the examples that are set before us. Well, first of all, what is faith? He tells us. 
Now, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. For by it, the people of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the world has been created by the word of God so that it, what has been seen has been made out of things that are invisible. And you just ponder those words. The things that are seen are made from the things that are invisible. Is that, not, is that not a miraculous statement? Is that not a statement that is truly has its roots and depth in faith? How else could we believe in that to which we've not seen? Amen. I like what Rizuda had to say about this. He says, what is our authentic faith? It is the cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirit, spirituality attached to it. He asked this question. A holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not the crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? Thought upon God and his promises. Amen. We find in verse 1 the essence of faith. The essence of faith being a certainty. These different Bible translations use the different words, certainty, assurance, confidence of things hoped for. I mean, think about it. You exercise faith all the time. When you sat in that chair, you exercised faith. You weren't sure that that chair was going to hold you, but you believe it did, and you sat down without worrying about it, didn't you? You didn't think a leg was going to break off your chair. The second portion of that, it is the proof or conviction of things not seen. Faith is not faith if you could see it. Faith is not faith if you have a guarantee. Faith is believing God for things that he has said, whether he shows us proof of it or not. In advance, it is the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2, we see faith is a means of accessing God's approval. James tells us, let, let not a man think that he will receive anything of God if he doesn't believe. For a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, James 1, 5 through 8. Faith, verse 3, is a means of gaining true, uh, true knowledge of God and his creation. Look at this, verse 3. By faith we understand that the world has been created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made of things that are, what is seen is made of things that are invisible. Now listen. Was anybody around at the creation? None of us. We know that God created everything from nothing. Uh, one way to put it is he, he created ex nihilo, meaning that there were no substances. There, there, there could not have been a big bang because there were no substances to make a big bang. There was God and God alone, and God spoke, and it came into existence. God created the invisible God, created the seen and physical world. Amen? 
We know that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned by what? By faith. You know, the fool said it in his mind and in his heart that there is no God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that God has shown it to every man, his, his existence by the things that are clearly seen. Therefore, people that say they don't believe in God, that they don't believe in creation, is, is because they suppress the truth. And God says, but because I've shown it to them through creation, they are without excuse. The way I'd like to look at that is the atheist says he doesn't believe in God. God says he doesn't believe in atheists because he's shown them his existence through the, through the created world. Now we turn to verses 4 to 38. Examples of persevering faith. And there are several breakdowns and categories of different examples of persevering faith. The first one we find in verses 4 through 7. The faith of the antediluvians. Antediluvians, what does that mean? Antediluvians meaning those that were before the deluge. Those that were before the flood. You see, there was a man named Noah, and God told him that he was going to flood the earth. God told him to build an ark. But even before that, there was Abel. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And Abel was a man of faith. In fact, we see in verse 4, that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice to God than Cain. Cain was jealous of his brother, and God even told him, why, why is your face so long? If you do what your brother's doing, if you come with the right heart, with the right motive, you'll be accepted as well. But instead of him doing what God says do, he chose to kill his brother. He slain his brother. Matthew 23, 25 calls it the blood of Abel the righteous. And then 1 John says Cain killed his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We go on to see that by faith there was a man named Enoch. Enoch was taken up. The Bible says he was and he was not. It doesn't say very much about Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. He is one of two people that were taken directly into heaven, the other one being Elijah. But he walked so closely with God that he just, God just took him. We don't see very much about Enoch at all. Strangely enough, you fast forward all the way almost to the end of the Bible, and you look in the book of Jude, and Jude has something to say about Enoch that all the way back to Enoch, who was the seventh generation from Adam, he said he prophesied about the, about the apocalypse. He prophesied about the coming Messiah. He prophesied about Jesus' return. Because all the way back then, Enoch was a man of faith. Amen. And the Bible says that even here in, in verse 6, kind of, he takes a, he kind of goes away from the personality and he goes into a little bit more depth about how faith works, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards 
those who seek him. Then we come to Noah. Now I mentioned about the flood and we call these folks the antediluvians because they existed and they exercised faith before the flood. Did you know that Noah was 500 years old when he had his first, first child? I read that and I was like, wow, 500 for your first child. It's estimated that he worked on this ark about 75 years, give or take. And mind you, it had not rained on earth at this time. God had caused water to spring up from the ground. So when Noah was preaching, talking about it's going to rain, they just thought he was an absolute madman. And then for 75 years, he works on an ark, a boat on dry ground. Quite a big boat, too. It's estimated that this, the span of this ark was about 450 feet long, so you, like about a, foot, a football field and a half in length, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet in height, and it had three decks. This was a remarkable piece of work that was done. And then he entered the ark at the age of 600. Can I get a glass of water, please? You get a chance. Oh, great. Thank you. Excuse me. <laughs> 600 when he enters the ark and the Bible says God shut the door then we fast forward to verses 8 and 12 and we see the faith of Abraham and Sarah the Bible says that by faith Abraham when he was called he obeyed by going out to a place which is he was received for an inheritance think about it he grew up in a pagan town, I don't want to put it on the communion table, this will work, okay, thank you, and God just tells him, hey, get up and leave, leave your family, leave everything, and he obeyed, by faith he lived, verse 9, as a stranger in a land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. God had promised him that your, your descendants would be like the sand on the seashore and that all, this, all your lineage would come down through, through Isaac and Jacob. And also, he was well beyond the years of childbearing, and same with his wife, Sarah. And they, they, they kind of laughed when God told them, you're going to have a child. That at this age, I'm old, I'm, I'm, I'm washed up. There's, there's no way this is going to happen. But I want to say this as a point of faith because all these men and women of faith, sometimes we can look at this and this chapter and say, this is the hall of faith and, and th these people like are untouchable. They're supermen and superwomen. But they were people just like you and I. They struggled. They had doubts. They questioned God when he told them things. But yet, they're still acknowledged for their faith. And so that ought to be an encouragement to us because sometimes our faith is just wavers a bit. Does anybody have perfect faith that can say, hey, I believe God absolutely without question, doubt, fear, or anything? No, I don't think anybody can say that. But we have these examples of faith, even with people that were flawed, people that did things like Sarah laughing when God told her she was going to have a child, and God said, you laugh, and she said, no, I didn't. Yet she still acknowledged for her faith. 
we go down to verses 13 and 16. Again, I'm, I'm flying over this, guys. Faith view of an eternal rest. So speaking of everyone that he mentioned, all the way from Abel, all the way down to uh, Abraham and Sarah at this junction of Scripture, it says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So they did not receive the fullness of everything that God had promised. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. Sometimes we get this mindset within Christianity that we're going to get all these blessings down here. We're going to get all this in the here and now when most of what God has in store for us is not, not on this earth. It is in the future coming kingdom. And we need to have our eyes on Christ, that we need to have our eyes fixed on heaven. And we're going to see some great examples of that, especially with Moses as we come up on a few other scriptures. Verse 14, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, that even though God had blessed them richly, I mean, Abraham was a rich man. He had, he had everything one would want in, that, in his era, but yet that did not satisfy him because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Amen. Verse 15, and indeed, if they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had an opportunity to return. So what the writer is saying here is that the focus wasn't on their uh, earthly homeland because they could have always gone back there, but the focus is on a heavenly homeland. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now we see the faith of the patriarchs in verses 17 to 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and the one who had received the promises was offering up his only son. And think about this. And a lot of people think Isaac was a, was a, was a little guy at this point, but he's really probably in his early 20s or so. And his father says, hey, go with me. We're going to go out in the wilderness and do a sacrifice. And he's like, well, where, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And then he gets out there and he tells him, get up on the altar. And he has some serious faith, too, because he just did what his dad told him to do. And then he went to raise up and slew his, slay his own son like God told him to do. And then the angel of the Lord cried out and said, no, stop. And then there was a ram in the thicket, and God said, provided another sacrifice. But look at this, verse 18. It was he to whom it was said through Isaac, so your descendants be named. So think about how Abraham was thinking about this. And Abraham is our, our, proto, is our prototypical man of faith. He is our the patriarch. He's the father of faith to all of us who believe. He's thinking, okay, I got this one son. God told me I'm going to have descendants through him. So even if I kill him, God is going to raise him back from the dead. Look at verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. And at this point, there would, think about it. At this point, there's no recollection of any resurrection. But Abraham already believed in a resurrection before one even occurred. Amen. By faith, verse 20, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. There's this 
lineage of faith being passed down through all, all of these patriarchs. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, Joseph, the sons of Joseph in worship, leaning on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus. So he hearkens back to when God brought them out of Egypt on dry ground through the Red Sea, and he gave orders concerning his bones. What does that mean? He believed in what God said, that they would be returned to the promised land. He, and, and in faith, he said, take my bones out of here and take them back to the promised land when you guys go. Amen. The faith of Moses we see here in verses 23 to 29. By faith, Moses, and this is really his parents' faith. You got, you got I mean, look at it. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So it's not just Moses' faith that's talked about in these passages but it's the faith of Moses' parents. Because they saw he was a beautiful child, I'm sure he was a beautiful child to look at, but this speaks of more than just his outward beauty or he was just that cute kid. But they knew something was special about him. They could see that he had an anointing, that he had a special touch on his life and that God was going to do something great with this kid. And they were not ashamed of the king's edict because the king had said, I want all these Hebrew boys slain. They're overrunning us. We need, to, we need to get rid of some of these Hebrews. So let's start killing them off. And his parents said, not so. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now remember, Moses was a very remarkable man. He could have been the next line in to be Pharaoh, or at least vice Pharaoh. But he chose to suffer, verse 25 rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. Verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. Listen to that. Considering the reproach of Christ. When you think reproach, think about suffering. Think about hardship. Think about enslavement. Think about all these things that no one would ever want in their life. And he considered that greater to suffer for Jesus' sake because he, he foresaw Christ. He considering the reproach of Christ. Christ is thousands of years away as far as showing up in the flesh. But he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he persevered. I love this clause. As though seeing him who is unseen. Moses, with spiritual eyes, with eyes of faith, saw the invisible God. Amen. That is incredible. You know, the Bible says of, of, of Moses, God said, I, I, I speak to people in all these various ways, but Moses, I speak to face to face. I tell you, he had a special relationship with God. By faith, still on Moses, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. What is that about? God had kept going back and forth with Pharaoh. He told, he told Moses, Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. God would bring various plagues. He would say, okay, you can go. They get ready to go, and he says, no, 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 wait a minute. No, you're not going anywhere. Finally, God was fed up. So he tells Moses, tell you what, 
you kill a lamb and then you take the blood of that lamb and you put it on the doorpost of every single Israelite and I'm going to send an angel of death throughout Egypt and wherever he does not see that blood, he is going to strike down the firstborn of that house. But where he does see the blood, he's going to pass over that house. And this harkens all the way back to Christ himself, who is our Passover. You see, Christ died and shed his blood for us. And you know what? When the wrath of God comes down and he sees the blood of Christ on us, he passes over us. Amen. 29, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground. I don't know how deep that sea was. But the Lord sent a wind and pushed back those waters, and they walked through on dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried to follow them, the waters covered them, and then they washed them up on the beach. God, God drowned them. Verse, verse 30, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after the Israelites had marched around them for seven days. This is really the faith of Joshua and those that obeyed when Joshua said, Come on, let's go. John MacArthur says this about that. The city was fortified by a double ring of walls. The outer was six feet thick and the inner was 12 feet thick. Timbers were laid across the supporting houses in the walls. Since the Israelites, excuse me, since Jericho was built on a hill, it could have taken, it could only be taken by the mountain of a, mounting a steep incline, which put the Israelites at a great disadvantage. Attackers of such a fortress often use a siege of several months to force surrender by starvation. What's the point there? That this was so heavily fortified. Humanly speaking, it would have been impossible to penetrate these walls and attack this city. But God told them that he's given, given them the city in his hands, and he, he, he told them to do something very odd. He said, for six days, I want you to march around I want you to march around the city, and I want you to just blow horns. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times and not only blow the horns, but shout. And the Bible says that the walls fell down flat. Verse 31, we see the faith of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. The Bible says, but by the faith of the prostitute Rahab, by faith the prostitute Rahab, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. Interestingly enough, Joshua had sent spies to spy out the city about how, and to determine how they were going to take them. And they came to a house of a prostitute of all people. Now, guess what? This woman who, who was not a Jew, she was not in the lineage of Jacob, she was a Gentile woman, yet she was a woman of faith. What did she do? She hid the spies on a roof when the king sent out an entourage to go looking for them. And she deceived the king's men, and she helped them escape. And she put her faith in the true God. Listen to what she says. I think this is remarkable for this woman. And we'll get, and I'll tell you some other really neat things about her. Remember, she's a prostitute. But you know what? God infused woman, excuse, infused faith in this woman. She exercised that faith, and she is listed in the hall of faith along with Abraham. 
Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. Now before the spies lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, listen to what she says. I know the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. For we have heard how the Lord, what does she call him? The Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and when you come out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Listen to verse 11. When we heard these reports, our hearts melted and no courage remained in anyone any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth below. Amen. There were a lot of people that were afraid because of the God of the Israelites, but not everybody exercised faith. In fact, only Rahab and her family, because she said, I tell you what, as a favor to me for helping me out, I want you to spare my family, and, and they kept their word. Listen to this. In James 2.25, she is mentioned in the same vein as Abraham, as an example of someone who possesses true preserving, persevering faith that isn't mere talk, but action. Most astonishing, Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Christ himself. In Matthew 1.5, we find she is the mother of Boaz and the great-grandmother of David and the ancestor of Joseph, the husband of Mary. You see how the grace of God works? Sometimes God will take the people that no one else would think to use, that we, we think are throwaways in society and that we wouldn't bother. We don't even think God would save such a person. But here it is. God used a prostitute not only to help and to exercise faith, but also to be in the genealogy of the, the hu humanity of Jesus himself. That is absolutely incredible. In verses 32 to 35, we see further victorious mentions of faith. The writer almost says rhetorically, what more shall I say then? It's like, y'all want me to just keep going? I mean, I could just, I mean, how, how, how many examples of faith do you want me to tell you about? And he said, Time would run out if I told you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These are all victorious mentions of faith. We see in Judges 6, 7, Gideon versus the, the Midianites. And I'm going to list these verses, but it's really not the people of faith against these armies. It's really the God of the people of faith against these armies. Barak, and I don't know why Deborah isn't mentioned because Barak had some shaky faith, and it was kind of Deborah that kind of had to urge him on. And he said, I won't even go unless you go with me. But it was Barak and Deborah against the Canaanites in Judges 5, 4 through 5. Samson, Samson against the Philistines in Judges 13 through 16. Jephthah versus the Ammonites and the Ephraimites in Judges 11 through 12. And then, of course, King David and Samuel the prophet 
And then the other prophets whose names aren't mentioned, but we know of Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, and others. And then he said, they shut the mouths of lions. We find that in Daniel chapter 6 when, when, da when Daniel was thrown in the lions then. You know, they schemed and said, we can't find anything wrong with him except something regarding his God. So we'll, we'll get the king to write an edict to say that if anybody petitions anything from anybody, any God or man other than you, they'll be thrown in the lion's den. They threw Daniel in the lion's den, stayed there overnight, petting lions. They didn't bother him. And then in the morning, the king, who realized he had been duped, said, Oh, Daniel, are you still alive? Did your God save you? And he said, Oh, king, live forever. And then those had, had duped the king into writing this edict. The Bible says that he had them thrown in the lion's den before they even hit the bottom. The lions had torn them and their families to pieces. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and again Abednego, who, again, were... As King Nebuchadnezzar was duped for making this huge golden statue of himself, and they said, well, anybody that doesn't bow down to your statue and worship this statue shall be thrown in the fire. And they said, we're not going to worship any other god but the god of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar says, are you serious? Come on out here. And right when these musicians start playing, you need to start bowing down and worshiping and and he said, well, who's going to save you? What God can save you? And then we come to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you concerning this matter. If it so be, our God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue you have set up. Now, that's some faith. The Bible says that the king was so upset that he had the furnace heated seven times hotter than it normally was. It was so hot that those that were throwing them in the fire got burned, burned to death. And then when the king looked in there, he said, I put three in there, but I see a fourth, and one is like a son of the gods. This was a Christophany. This was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who was in the fire with these three men of faith. F.F. Bruce comments on this. He said, had they received a special revelation that their lives would be reserved, it would have called for considerable faith to act upon in the face of the burning fiery furnace. But to behave as they did without any revelation of the kind call for much greater faith. That's some serious faith. I know I don't even like a finger getting burnt. And you're going to get thrown in a furnace. And you say, oh, my God, he can deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down and worship your God. Then we see that the Bible says women receive they're dead back by resurrection. I found that there were eight instances of resurrections in the Bible, starting with uh, the widow of Zerophiah, who was raised, the son of the widow was raised by, uh, by Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 
17 to 24. And there were several instances all through, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through that. But then we, we know of several instances where Jesus raised people, the most famous of all being Lazarus himself. Then we come to verse 35 to 38, the persevering faith of the maltreated. Now, this is an interesting juncture. For up to now, we've talked about all these great exploits of victory concerning faith. Then all of a sudden, halfway through verse 35, the tables start to turn. And I want to say this to all of you. There is a teaching that has been going on for many years now that says, well, if you have faith and if you just do everything that God wants you to do, you're never going to be sick. You're, not, you're going to have plenty of money. Everything is going to go your way. And you can just bind the devil with some words and, you, and everything is just going to go your way. And you're going to have everything you want. In fact, you can just claim whatever you want. And you, you want a new Mercedes? Just claim it. God will give it to you. But I think this flies in the face of the persevering faith of the maltreated. Listen to this. And others were tortured. Tortured. F.F. Bruce states that this word tortured in the Greek is a particular form of tor torture, suggesting the idea of being stretched out on a frame and beaten to death. Listen to this. Not accepting their release. So there's the implication that they could have denied their faith and been, and been released. But they did not accept release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, Isaiah. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, not a mink coat, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts on mountains and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. I think about us in our nice, warm, fluffy, westernized Christianity cocoon. But that's changing. I believe persecution is on the horizon for us as the church, the true people of God. Do we think that we're just going to get by and God is just going to just bless us to just kind of cruise on through, not have to exercise faith, not have to be put through the tests? I don't think so. There are many examples. For example, in the Maccabees, there was a guy named Elziar, Elziar in 2 Maccabees 6 who willingly accepted death rather than to forswear his loyalty to Yahweh. Another example in 2 Maccabees 7 was seven brothers were tortured but would not deny their faith. And here's what they said to the king. You accursed wretch. You dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to eternal, everlasting renewal of life because we've died for his loss. Another bearing witness of their faith in the face of great trial and torture and 
martyrdom. One cannot help choose but to die at the hands of men and cherish the hope that God gives of bringing, being raised by him again. But for you, there'll be no resurrection life. The, you see, these people, they were not afraid of death. They loved not their lives into the death. And when they were threatened with their life, they chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. They chose rather to die than to deny the Christ that bought them. What about us? What about if persecution comes knocking on our door? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often have I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks and you were unwilling? Luke 11, 49 and 52, Jesus again. For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, Jesus all the way going back to the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall have been charged against generation Woe to you lawyers. And he's not lawyers what we think. We're not thinking Frank Azar here. <laughs> lawyers and those that were the keepers of the law, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, who prided themselves in being keepers of the law. Jesus rebuked them for being hypocrites. And he said, for you have taken away the, the key of knowledge. You yourselves enter, do not enter in. In the union words, he's saying, you're not going to heaven. And you hinder those who are trying to enter themselves. And then, of course, there was Stephen, who preached a staunch message to the Israelites. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, and you now have become betrayers and murderers of him, speaking of Jesus, who you received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The picture I'm painting here is that true persevering faith endures under trial. True persevering faith does not shy away. Those, those in Acts that were beaten said they, they went away joyfully thanking God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Philippians 1.29 says, For it's not only given you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to suffer for his sake. It comes with the package. You don't just get to walk through this world and be blessed and not suffer for the name of God, for the name of Christ who shed his blood on our behalf. We, we don't shed our blood to be saved. We shed our blood because he shed his and we have an allegiance with him. We're buried with him in baptism. We are one with him. Then we have verses 39 through 40, lengthy passage. The commendation of persevering faith. And this is what God says about them. Some would say, well, they didn't have enough faith and that's why they went through all these trials. God says they went through all these trials because they had all that faith. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, 
they would not be made perfect. F.F. F. Bruce thus comments, some of them, as we were told in verse 33, obtained promises, but none of them received the promise in the sense of witnessing in its fulfillment. But now the promise has been fulfilled. The age of the new covenant has dawned. Christ, to whose day they look forward to, has come, and his self-offering and his high priestly ministry in the presence of God has procured perfection for them and us. See, back to the Old Testament, they didn't envision the church. The church was a mystery, and yet God was unfolding his master plan of everything all the way back from righteous Abel all the way up until the last saint to be saved in this age, that God had a plan to include all of us in his great promises of the future. Not only a salvation from the penalty of sin, but a salvation from the presence of sin and an eternal city not made with hands, whose builder and maker is God, that God would have us all together. Then we come to, lastly, the motivation to persevere in faith. And the motivation is the examples that are set before us. We find this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. The great cloud of witnesses in verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race of endurance that is set before us. If you're like me, you probably grossly misinterpreted this verse. When most people read this and they see great cloud of witnesses, they think there's a big stadium up in the sky, and these people, these great cloud of witnesses, are looking down and cheering us on. That, that sounds nice. But believe me, people in heaven are not interested in looking down what's going on down here. Neither are they enamored with our bleak faith. Trust me. Some of these people that died and gave their life and they look at what we won't do. You know, there, even today, there are people being persecuted on this globe for their faith. There are people that have all their possessions taken from them because of their faith. There are people that are give, risking their lives for the sake of the gospel because of their faith. All those people who do that under those conditions, what we won't do in freedom. And you know what? Our freedoms are rapidly dissipating, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. The witness spoken of here is not the saints going down and looking down before us, which is a common misconception, but rather the witness they bore in the life of faith that they lived. MacArthur puts it this way. The deceased people in chapter 11 give witness to the value and blessing of living by faith. Motivation for running the race is not the possibility of receiving praise from observing heavenly saints. Rather, the runners inspired by the godly examples of those saints set during their lives. We should go back to this, these passages often and look at these great men and women of faith and know that they were flawed, know that they wavered, know that they doubted, and yet, God lists them in the hall of faith. And then all the nameless people who were mur murdered and tortured and destitute and poor and had nothing. Even Jesus himself, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man had no way to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. Then he says, therefore, since you have this example, what do we do with it? Rid ourselves of every obstacle 
and the sin which so easily entangles us. Sin in each and every one of us is a struggle. We say, we like to tout that men have free will. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you exercised your free will not to sin for a day? It's not possible. It's not possible. Because we are born in sin, and even though we are saved by the grace of God, and Christ has come in us and baptized us in his spirit, we yet still live in this earthen vessel. We're a bunch of crackpots. The Bible says we have this treasure, the treasure which is Christ himself, in earthen vessels. It's not the, it's not the earthen vessel that's the value. It's, the, it's what's in the container. It's the spirit of God living on the inside, transforming us to the image of Christ. Yes, Lord. With that, because we have him living on the inside, we, rid, we are to rid ourselves of every obstacle. Jesus even put it this way, very drastically, but he said it this way to prove a point. If your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offend you, if, if, you, if you're prone to steal, cut it off. He's not saying to maim yourself. He's saying take drastic measures. Do whatever you need to do. If you know you struggle in a certain area, do what you need to do to refrain from it. Because this sin, it entangles us and it trips us up. He's using this analogy of a runner. A runner can't run with something tied around his legs. He must be free to run. And then the last part. Let us run this race with endurance that is set before us. This is not a, 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 a quick sprint. It's a marathon. It's a, it's, a, it's a run of agony. It's a tough road to hoe. It's, it's living through this life, pressing through all of the obstacles, knowing that we're not going to go around everything, but we trust God that he's going to work everything together for our good. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord of all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. Then we see the ultimate example of our motivation for persevering in faith, which is Jesus himself. Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter. How many know faith is a gift? We didn't just get up and say one day, well, I'm going to have faith. I'm going to believe in Christ. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to live for him. No. Faith has been granted to us as a gift. The Bible says that he is the pioneer. He's the author of it. Were, were we not given faith, we would have no faith. Romans chapter 3 says there's none that do of good. There's none that seek of after God. So how is it that we come to seek God? Because God has done something to us. Remember Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. He said, all that the Father has given me will come to me, not potentially, but will. And this is all the work of Jesus, face pioneer and perfecter. Verse 2 says, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew what he was going to endure, but he looked beyond that. He, he looked beyond that, and he saw you and I. In fact, his, his vision is so 
far ahead that the Bible says, even before the foundation of the world, that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. He endured the cross. And I want to tell you something. The cross wasn't the worst of it. I mean, you think of all these men and women that were tortured gladfully for the gospel, who sung while being burned alive, praises to God. And then do we think the God-man, Jesus, Theos, Anthropos, the hypostatic union, 100% man, 100% God, was so worried and stressed out about a Roman cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. And what is that? It's a medical term called hematidrosis, where he was under such endure pressure and stress that the capillaries in his temple burst and the blood came out of his pores. And that's why the Bible said he sweat great drops of blood. And he said, Father, if, if it, there be any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. What cup? I remember Paul Washer saying this, that he was preaching about the cup that Jesus asked, if there's any other way, let this pass. And a little seven-year-old girl stood up, and she said, Mr. Washer? And he said, yes. Because he, he asked what was in the cup. She said, the wrath of God was in the cup. Think about that that what would have taken an eternity of God's wrath to pour down on you and me, that in these hours, he poured it out on his own son. Hallelujah. Glory to God. That he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That this was a shameful thing to be crucified, yet he despised the shame. And then the Bible says, and you guys have covered this in earlier chapters of Hebrews, that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the significance about him sitting down? Because we know in the old sacrificial system that the priest's work was never done because the people kept on sinning. So they had to come over and over and over again and once a year to the Day of Atonement where this blood would be shed because the Bible said without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But yet this man, the Christ, it said that when he made an offering for sin once, he sat down because it was finished. It was done. There need, no be, there need be no more sacrifice, for Jesus has done it all. The Bible says that he didn't enter the heavens, the true temple of God, with the blood of bulls and goats or the sprinkling of ashes of the heaven, but he entered with his own blood to forever purchase eternal redemption for us. Amen. Lastly, by way of application. It's time for us to get serious about our faith. Immorality and disregard for the things of God are at an all-time high and rapidly declining. You think of where we've come just in the last 10 years with the morality that we see around us and what is not only accepted but celebrated. The stage is being set for the persecution of God's people in contemporary Western civilization. There's a growing intolerance to difference of opinion. You notice that? You notice that? Certain people 
are allowed to have all the opinion they want. But when you come with the opinion that is a biblical worldview based on what God has said, they want to cancel you. Hence, cancel culture. If you don't believe it, go to England. I, my, my friend Robert, who preaches all over this planet, he goes, to, he goes to England to preach, and one of the things they like to ask him is, what do you think about homosexuality? Why? Because it's illegal to preach against homosexuality in England, and they want to hem him up to get him arrested to shut him down from preaching the gospel. But Robert's smarter than that, and he says, you already know what the Bible says. I'm telling you the, that it's going to close in on us a lot sooner than what we think, church. A lot sooner than what we think. And you know what? Paul Washer said this also, and I believe it. He made some very stark remarks. He says, don't think that all the apostles, who, by the way, every single one of them were martyred except for one, which is John on Island of Patmos, where he died when he wrote the Revelation. Go get this. Paul Washer says this. They were made enemies of the state. In other words, the state made what they were doing illegal to have a stance with which to shut them up and ultimately kill them. I don't doubt that that could happen here. We may think not. I do think there's biblical uh, precedence for it. Listen to what Jesus said in Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 10 to the church of Smyrna. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Hmm. The devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Was Jesus insinuating that Satan himself is going around arresting people and hauling them off to prison? I don't think so. But we know that the devil... The Bible says Satan is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, and he works through the agency of men to come against God and his people. Hence what Paul Washer was saying about making them the enemies of the state. There was a pastor up in Canada that got arrested for holding services. Did you know that? Did you know that? But Jesus goes on to say, so that you will be tested and will have tribulation 10 days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. How will we fare in our testing? What kind of faith will we have? I don't think this is an area that any of us can boast in, and we don't know where we'll be until we put it in that situation. Will we not love our lives to the death? Will we rejoice that we were kind of worthy to suffer for the name? Jesus said, blessed are you if you've been persecuted for my sake, for righteousness sake. Will we stand? Will we side with Jesus during those times? Or will we cave when we're challenged for our faith? 
James 1, 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love him. We want to be like those people who were commended for their faith. We don't love this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. We're not living for the world. We're living for that city whose builder and maker is God, a city not made with hands because we see through eyes of faith he who is invisible. Amen. Lastly, I want to close with a quote, another one from Art Arizuda. He says, the object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all of his promises. He asks, is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, your faith becomes increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? Art says this, I love it. By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing Word of God, read of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we indeed thank you for this rich, lengthy passage of scripture about our confidence that we have through faith. We thank you that with eyes of faith, we can see you. We thank you that we believe in you whom we've not seen. And you said we're blessed because of it. We trust in you that you created the heavens and the earth from nothing. We believe that account. We believe like all the men and women of faith that we find in these passages. Help us to endure in these trying days that are coming. Let us not assume persecution will not come knocking at our door. But trust in you when it does that we be found worthy when that happens and that we will receive a crown of light which you promise to all trust in you and persevere. Soli Deo Gloria, to God be the glory forever and ever, amen. World without end, praise God, amen.